0: Psalm 33, starting in verse 1. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the heart. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations here are our vocal verses for today. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. From heaven, the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. For no king is saved by the size of his army, no warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance, despite all its great strength that cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in the famine. Praise be to God for his amazing and glorious word, this psalm that has been passed on from generation to generation for thousands of years that points us to the salvation and the hope and the deliverance we have in Christ our King. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for an opportunity for us to embrace this Advent season in a way that awakens our hearts to the salvation that is offered in this manger scene. God, and I pray that it would be so profound, that it would be so real, that God, it would be something that forever changes us. Even in this moment now, God, as we prepare to embrace your word, embrace this truth, and embrace this Advent season, God, that you would speak to each and every one of us exactly where we are. God, that your spirit would, would fill this room God, that we would be in awe of who you are, and we would receive the hope of our salvation and bring you the glory you so richly deserve. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. December 22nd, y'all. The countdown is in its final stages, and uh, as you can see... Uh, there's, it, it's taking its toll on people. You have uh, Matt that's out a little bit today, not feeling good. Jason had the bubonic plague, apparently, so I don't recommend shaking his hand after the service as well. Um, but obviously, it's, it's one of those things that the closer we get to the 25th, it comes with anticipation, it comes with joy. I do hope that you all are able to come back and join us here in a couple of days for Christmas Eve as we gather around, uh, once again, the, the lighting of the candles, singing those traditional timeless songs, and just being reminded of this light that shines forth in the darkness that we have with Christ. Uh, hopefully, you're all, you are all able to join us here in the next couple of days. Uh, that means that today marks kind of our final Sunday of Advent. This is, this is the last time that we have a chance to really uh, dive into this psalm. We'll reference the last few verses on Christmas Eve. But through the last several weeks, we've had a chance to use Psalm 33 as our guide for this Advent season. And we've extrapolated these different themes that, that we've wanted to kind of zero in on. We have talked about joy. talked about love. Last week, we talked about faithfulness, right? That we can be faithful because God is faithful. And today, the theme that really begins to emerge uh, in the verses that we're going to look at today is this idea of deliverance, of salvation, right? And we use this word, we use this terminology of salvation and, and, and saving all the time within the context of Christianity, right? It, it, it's almost second nature, right? I mean, like I, I, you, you share your story. I, I can uh, refer back to that moment when I was 10 years old and I was at a Christian sports camp in New Braunfels, Texas. And though I had grown up in the church, it was there in that setting that I really first remember someone explaining to me the gospel, the importance of it, and how you received it. And so I remember late on a Wednesday night, laying there on the football field, and looking up in the sky and seeing all these stars, and asking Jesus into my heart. And it was this moment that a lot of times people would look at a testimony like that and say, that's when I was saved. Right? We, we use this term all the time. But do we really ever stop and consider its implications and and just what we mean by that and and the importance of it? And that's what I want us to explore today. What what does that mean? God's come to deliver us. He brings us salvation. But what does that look like? It's got to be more than just understanding some story or some testimony. And that's what I want us to kind of dive into today. We're going to do this by looking at this section of of verses, verses 12 through 19, and kind of two parts. You've got 12 through 15 and then 16 through 19 that we're going to kind of look at today. And so the, the first thing that you see in that, that, that series of verses in 12 through 15 is this theme of God's all-seeing, all-knowing presence, right? You, you see the terminology that the psalmist begins to implore as he progresses through this psalm. He begins to talk about how the Lord looks, how he sees, how he watches, how he considers over and over again. In those series of verses, we get this picture of a God who sees all and knows all, right? The the word watch means to look at intently, right, to gaze upon. So what we're discovering is that God is not some creator who sits back and kind of watches from afar. It's not like he comes home, checks in on earth, and is like, just show me the highlights, right? He is intently watching everything. He sees all of it. The word consider means special knowledge, right? He knows all of it. So the progression that the psalmist has taken us on is really remarkable because it begins with creation, right? That God speaks the world into existence, and then it kind of narrows into a specific plan that he's revealing in the course of human history. And now this creator is intimately aware of every heart. He sees all. He knows all. Now, how do we respond to that? How does that make us feel? It's an interesting thing to think about when somebody knows everything, sees everything that we do. A lot of times when we think about this in real life circumstances, we would consider it an invasion of privacy, right? There's a certain sentimentality that we carry that we want things that are just for us that nobody else should really know, right? Think think about how just a couple of years ago, um, there was this article that really kind of gained national attention of this couple in Portland, Oregon, And all of a sudden what the story was is that they were having a private conversation when Alexa, their little Amazon device, recorded their private conversation and then sent it as a recording to one of their acquaintances in Seattle. And so everybody was like, wait, what? I mean, the the acquaintance like calls them up and says, so I hear you guys are interested in buying wood floors. And what are you talking about? Well, we heard a whole conversation that took place in your home that your Alexa sent us. And so it, it gained this national kind of headline with this question of, is, is Alexa eavesdropping in on everything that we're saying? And the obvious answer is yes, right? And you have to go through all these steps in order to protect your privacy. And we, we're especially reminded of it right now during the Christmas season, you'll go and you'll look for a Christmas gift and the next thing you know, you go look at your newsfeed and there are all the advertisements for that gift. And you're like, man, I just, you don't need to know everything that I'm doing, right? Just this week, I came across an article about um, the technology that China is beginning to employ and, and this surveillance technology that they're selling to all these different countries around the world, and a lot of it is driven by facial recognition. So, so China and many countries have the ability to track where we, where we go online and all these different things. They can track us with our devices, but now they have so many cameras that can identify through facial recognition and trace your actual movements, Right? And so part of what the article was supposing is that where they're moving is this idea of having citizen scores. So they can actually document where you're moving. And like, let's say you jaywalked across the street. It wouldn't be unheard of for like later in the afternoon, a police officer to show up and be like, well, we've got you on film. We, we know you did this. And so they can track I mean, it, the did you obedient. Did you follow the law? Are you in alignment with all of our ideals and values? I mean, it, the article is like, this is scary. Right, that's, that's the way that we tend to react to this sort of surveillance, this sort of awareness, this all-seeing, ever-present, all-knowing sort of experience. We, we feel like that's an invasion of our privacy. And the reason I think we feel that way in those sorts of circumstances is because we don't really trust the people that would have that information. Right? We, we don't trust big companies. We don't trust big government. Because we know that if they are aware of every conversation, every movement, they're gonna use it to their advantage. Maybe they'll manipulate us Maybe they'll falsely accuse us. Who, who knows what could happen? But that's not the case with God. Now, God still has that sense of, of all-knowing, of, of ever-present, all-seeing sort of reality in our midst, but it still makes us uneasy, not because we don't trust him, right? Because he's, he's already been established as one that is trustworthy, right? He, he loves righteousness. He loves justice, He he is faithful. The earth is full of his unfailing love. You can trust God. So the uneasiness when we think about this with God is not about what he would do with it, but the information that he might actually gain. To think that he knows everything you do, every action, public or private, every thought, every motive behind those actions, behind those words, he sees it all. And so where the psalmist is leading us is that this all-seeing, all-knowing God, that, that reality is either going to be a call for praise or terror. What is it for you? Right, it's a, it's a call for praise when we understand that if we've offered um, our lives to this creator, we have nothing to hide, right? We, we have it as a sense of comfort because we know that if we go to the heights, he's there. If we're in the depths... He's there. there's nowhere we can go to escape his presence he's always with us and that is a tremendous source of comfort but if we haven't surrendered to the creator right and if we're trying to fool him if we're trying to keep things still for ourselves well then that is a source of terror because we recognize you can't fool him he sees everything he knows it all and so what the psalmist is doing here is is using it as a call towards praise but he's also using this as a foundation to speak to the salvation that he's about to elaborate on. Because what he's about to say is that, listen, what God does, his plans, his act, his saving is built upon perfect knowledge. So a lot of times we we go about and we look at the way that God orchestrates within life, within this world, and we question it because we have a limited perspective. What the psalmist is trying to say is that, listen, when you see the the hand of God, when you see what he's doing, he's not doing this based on partial information. He's not responding based on assumptions. He knows all perfectly. And so his response, his plan of deliverance is in fact then perfect as well. And that's really where the psalmist is beginning to take us. We can trust his salvation, we can trust his deliverance because he knows all, he sees all. And so that's the transition into those next set of verses in 16 through 19. You see the terminology change. Now you see the word save occur multiple times. The word escape, the word deliver. And so what, what are we talking about here? Well, a, on a very simple definition, the, the root that is used here for the word save means to make wide. That's really what it literally means. It's this idea that when it's a narrow path or a narrow experience, there's, there's pressure, you're hemmed in, there's distress. And so this word, this root word for save means to make wide, to set one free from that distress and right, so that's that's kind of a, a, an image that the psalmist is creating this idea of escape or deliverance is the concept of rescue right that this rescue from danger this rescue from peril and so part of what we need to see is that there's this deliverance there's this rescue from an enemy and the question becomes well rescued from what and to what what where is this salvation needed why is it necessary and part of what the psalmist begins to lead us into is that a lot of times we look to the wrong things for that salvation, right? He, he references the, no king is saved by the size of his army, no, no warrior by his strength. The horse is a vain hope for deliverance. And that's really where I want us to spend our time. That, that phrase to me is what kind of leapt off the page in this section, a vain hope of deliverance. That, that word vain means that it was a deception, It's a lie, and it creates a mistaken belief, right? So part of what the psalmist is getting us to see is that a lot of times we look to the wrong things to save us. We we look to the wrong things to bring deliverance. Those things that we so frequently look to for that sort of salvation is actually a mistaken belief. It's a lie. And so what does that look like in our context, right? Obviously, part of what the psalmist is referring to here is the nation of Israel being brought up out of Egypt and Pharaoh's armies being destroyed. But, but what does that look like for you and for me today? How do we really understand this sort of deliverance and how do we make sure we haven't bought into some mistaken belief or a lie? That's what I want us to explore for a moment, okay? Let, let's, let's go through some introspective work here. Um, this, this past week, I had to take my car in to get fixed. And uh, it was one of those things that just kind of is built upon itself. My headlight is out on the driver's side. I need to get it fixed because I got to get my car inspected. I got to get my car inspected because registration is passed. I hope none of the officers are in here. And so like I here I was on my third mechanic because apparently for a 2007 Accord, like you have to take the whole bumper off to change a light bulb. And so first two places couldn't do it. Finally go to the third place. They still couldn't do it. But I didn't know that at the point at this point in time. And so a lot of times when I go to get my car fixed, I take my computer, take my books, because who knows how long you're going to wait. So I'm at this small little mechanic place on Barry Street, and I walk into the waiting room. There's one other lady in there, and I walk in with my laptop and my books, and she notices my books, and she asks me a question, makes a comment. She goes, oh, you're a seminary student. I said, no, actually, I'm a pastor, to which then she was very shocked. Uh, I often get a shocked response every time I say I'm a pastor. I don't know what that's about yet, but apparently it's not very believable or something. I don't know, but, but she was like, oh, and I was like, so yeah, I've done the whole seminary thing. Yes, I'm studying, I'm preparing. And so it was clear that she had a familiarity with the scriptures. I mean, she referenced 1 Corinthians 13. She talked about Jesus and we had a nice little conversation. In the midst of that conversation, she talked about how she has a Native American heritage and that's really where her belief system comes from. And so she wouldn't consider herself a follower of Jesus, but kind of had a different view of the world, and so we started talking about how that view was shaped. And when I asked her, I said, how did that belief system come into place? She said, well, you know, there was a season in my life where I was really hitting rock bottom, and I had gone through so much that I began to ask myself, man, what, what is my life really about? And, and, then, I, and then I kind of got better here. I went to AA and I got cleaned up and now this is how I see the world. And it was a really interesting, insightful story that she shared. And and what, what again kind of struck me was that statement was that when she was at rock bottom, she thought, what is my life about? This is really kind of the question that allows us to walk into this cave of understanding deliverance, right? What is the meaning of life? It's a question we all ask, whether consciously or subconsciously at some point. What what is its purpose, right? Rick Warren wrote Purpose Driven Life in the early part of the 2000s. In the last two decades, it sold more than 30 million copies in 85 different languages. Why? Because it is the central question so many people ask. What is my purpose? What gives life meaning, right? So, So how do we answer that? How do we begin to understand what gives life meaning and purpose? I, I would suggest to us this morning that there are at least two categories that help us answer that question. The first is environment. The environment with, with, within which we live often shapes our understanding of what is meaningful and purposeful, right? We, we have the, the fortune of living in this country where the, the truths and the ideals of this country are that you have a right to pursue life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And so you're here, and part of what you are told is that your meaning, your purpose, is to pursue the American dream. The two-story house, the white picket fence, the 2.5 children and a dog, that's that's what life is about. And that's because this is your environment. Compare that to somebody that's living in Yemen or any war-torn country right now. They don't have the luxury of, of pursuing those things they they wake up with oppression and their concern is where am i going to find food today purpose in that context in that environment is survival so our environment greatly shapes our view of what gives life meaning and purpose and it's not just from a societal perspective it's not just from culture it's it's even more intimate it's family what what was your home life environment like what was it stable was it loving? Was it secure? Was it broken? Was it tumultuous? Was it abusive? Right? That environment shapes your perspective of the world and where your life is going to find meaning and purpose because it's typically in that environment where we find the second category that gives us meaning and purpose, which is values. Right? What is it that you value? What is it that you are told or that you observe is what makes life meaningful it's there where you learn systems of honesty integrity work ethic or maybe you just see it modeled for you with what other people pursue that they elevate the importance of money or status or all these different things you're given values right so for me at an early age i understood work hard value education value family value faith but that was a large part of my environment and the values that were taught to me and so what happens is is that we take our environment, we take our values, and somewhere along the way, we begin to say, this is where my life will find meaning. This is where my life is going to experience purpose. And so so maybe we assign that value and that purpose to success, right? We're we're in an environment or a system system of values that really uh, emphasize achievement. We were in all the activities, grades were important, education was important, so you had to go to the right college so you could get the right degree, to get the right job, to have the right income, to have the right house, and to have the right status. And so we've given our lives to success and everything that it entails. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's the relationships that we, we had, that we valued so much when we were growing up, or maybe it's the ones that we didn't have, and we start thinking, man, I, I don't really care what I do. I care more about who I'm with. I've got to have the perfect wife, the perfect husband. We have to have the perfect children. We need to have this family and pour into this family and and cultivate and curate and and grow these children because who who they are and how they live will be a reflection of us and everything is about relationship and that's where we put value and meaning in life. Maybe it's pleasure. Right? I, I want to experience everything. Life is short. You get one chance to live it. So let me get every sort of experience that I can, whether that's drugs and alcohol or travel and adventure, whatever it is, let me fill my life with anything that makes me feel good. That's where I find meaning. That's where I find value. So what is it for you? Where have you assigned meaning and purpose in your life? And yet we shouldn't just ask, where is it for you? We should really ask, where is it, for us, it's not just an individual question. Let's not forget the psalmist is writing to the, to the people of Israel, right? This is a communal question. We, we can think about this on a large scale. Think, think about it as a country. How do we find meaning and value in our country? We're about to have a year of that sort of discussion, right? That, that we find significance and worth as a nation by strong economy, strong defense, These sorts of values, this sort of president, this sort of Supreme Court justice, these are the things that we should value. This is where our country will find meaning and purpose and significance and all these different things that we desire. We can think about it from a church perspective. How do we define meaning and purpose as a church? Where do we find significance? Now, we can use Sunday school answers, and we can use terminology that we've been taught if we grew up in the church but if we were to reduce it a lot of times in its most simple form the metric we use is numerical isn't it more people show up more money that's given man now we know we're making an impact now we know we found meaning now we're being significant now we have purpose right so we can think about it corporately communally individually right and that's where we begin to start now what's the impulse behind all of that, regardless of what, it's an individual or a corporate, what's the impulse we're desiring? Happiness. Isn't it, in, in its most simple form, isn't that what we're talking about? These are the things that will make me happy. It's best I can tell. So I'm going to give everything I can to him. If it's, if it's money, if it's success, if it's relationship, th- this spouse will make me happy. Having children will make me happy. That's what I want. And the reason that becomes so important and the reason we pursue it so diligently is because it doesn't take long for any of us to realize that life is not guaranteed happiness. And there are many times where we go through life and we encounter a season, a moment, A circumstance in life is empty of happiness not filled with it and that's what we want to be saved from isn't it at the end of the day we we see there's pain there's heartache there's hardship i don't want that deliver me from that save me from that give me happiness anything i can do can that can achieve it doesn't take long for us to realize how hard and how hurtful this life can be. Just this morning, I'm reading through a different series of articles and I come across an article in the New York Times. It featured the story of this lady who lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And just a few days ago, she put an ad out on Craigslist. And this ad was right there in the midst of all these other advertisements for furniture and toys and these things. And you know what her ad said? Anyone need a grandma for Christmas. And then her little few sentences of exploration or explanation were, I'll, I'll cook, I'll cook meals for you, I'll bring gifts for the kids, and then in all caps, I don't have anyone, and it hurts. And then the story, in the article you know, tracked her down, saw a lot of different responses to her ads, some very troubling, concerning, some very heartwarming, and she basically said in her quote, she said, look, I was just tired of feeling like I wasn't loved and I didn't belong. That, it's not hard for us to go through life and realize, this hurts, save me, for, I just want to be happy. If I can feel loved, if I can feel belonged, if I can, fill in the blank, whatever it is that we begin to decide gives our life meaning and purpose, it's because we think that's what makes us happy and so we wanna be saved from a life of unhappiness and pursue a life of happiness. Here's the problem, according to Psalm 33, so many of those things that we pursue are a lie. It's a deception. It's a mistaken belief, it's a vain hope of deliverance. That success, that family, that experience will not save you. Now here's the challenge in us recognizing that. Any good lie has an element of truth to it. Because the things that we think will make us happy, guess what? They actually make us happy. Right? Like you 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 live in a country that has strong economy and good defense, you're going to enjoy that you have a church that's thriving and growing and more money's given you got all these resources to give to me you're going to enjoy that you, you have a good career and a, and a nice home and good fit you're going to enjoy it. there's going to be happiness so it's easy for us to say this is what life is all about it's working and not realize we've bought into a lie it's happiness but it's a cheap inversion of happiness you know what it is it's the dollar store my kids love the dollar store. Uh, we, we go there semi-regularly. It's kind of like an, a, an incentive, a reward thing for them every once in a while. And who, how could you not like the dollar store? I mean, you walk in, and here's this whole row of toys. And you're just looking at it. You're like, look at all this stuff that I could buy, you know. And it's got dolls. It's got Nerf guns and uh, baseballs, and basketballs, and art supplies, and some puzzles, and so my kids will go in there, and they'll just grab stuff, and they are like get an armful, and they'll come in, lay it on the cashier, and it's like four bucks. They're like, yes, you know? Who doesn't love that? It's amazing. It's a truly happy, joyful experience, but just like a month ago, uh, we had taken a recent trip to the dollar store, and we come home, and Annabelle, it's like starting to click, and she looks at me, and she goes, you know, Dad, I've noticed a lot of the stuff we buy at the dollar store It breaks pretty easily I was like really huh she goes yeah and some of it like doesn't even really work and I was like yeah really and I decided in that moment to go ahead and explain to her the the reason behind that phrase you get what you pay for right that's life is it not and we we walk into life and we go look at all this stuff I can have success I can have family, I can have uh, material things, I can have experiences, and it's all good, and it's actually happy, but at some point, it will fail you. It will break, and you'll discover this is a cheapened version of meaning and purpose. This is not what my soul really longs for. I still need to be rescued. And that's for the psalmist, begins to refocus our hearts. And now we get to see how our instinctive pull towards these mistaken beliefs needs to be reshaped by the truths of scripture. And I love verse 12. Verse 12 to me is such an insightful way for us to make sure we have a true understanding, not of our own pursuit of happiness and our own temptation towards happiness, but what God defines as happiness and salvation. right, so verse 12 says, blessed is the nation who belongs to the Lord, Right, Blessed are the people he has chosen for his inheritance. Okay, I wanna focus on those first and last words of that verse. First is blessed. Right, this, this word in its simplest form is happiness. But it's from God's perspective. Here's where you find happiness. It's not in the size of the army or the strength of the warrior or the might of the horse. Your happiness is found in the fact that you belong to the Lord. That you're his. That's the real blessing. And the psalmist even gives us an insight to it that we're going to elaborate on here further in just a moment. If you look at that last verse, verse 19, what does he define that the Lord does when we're in his possession? Right, that he saves us from death and he allows us to be alive in the famine. This is such an insightful way for us to understand God's blessing. Right, the ultimate enemy of happiness is death. And God's saying, that's what I'm going to overcome for you. But not only that, I'm going to keep you alive in the famine. So no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what despair you're in, distress you're in, if you're with me, you're alive. And I can keep you alive even in the midst of all that hardship. So for you and me, we go through life and we experience heartache, we experience struggle, we experience pain, we experience the famine. And the Lord says, you're still alive with me. And you still have hope you have hope of this victory over death. And that's where we get a picture of what sort of saving God actually has in store for us. And I love the word inheritance. I think it's such a rich and meaningful word for this psalm. We, we hear the word inheritance and what do we think? We think it's, it's a will, right? It's somebody that's, that's left some money to the, the people, their loved ones that they've left behind after they've passed away. So a lot of times we assign a monetary value to inheritance, and that's not what is being discussed here, but it is very significant. The word inheritance in its, in its most literal definition is land or property. So, so, so stay with this, right? This is the story of Israel, right? Here's, here's what God is saying. I'm bringing you up out of Egypt, right? You're, you're, you're leaving this country, you're leaving this life that you've known, but guess what I have in store for you? I'm taking you to a new land, and it was an actual, physical, tangible land. I'm bringing you to this promised land flowing with milk and honey. This, this became the measure, the tangible expression of God's salvation. He was establishing a new kingdom. That's the gift. That's the inheritance. You get an actual piece of property and land where you're going to live, where you're going to experience my fellowship with you. It is the, this side of, the, of a new kingdom. Now, how do we interpret that on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection? See, because when we simply reduce God's saving work, that we get to be happy in life, that we get some sort of emotional experience, then we have thought far too small of what God has offered. When we think that being saved from death means that our souls get to go float in the clouds in heaven and we get a halo and wings, we have thought far too small of what God has offered Here's what he talks about in the scriptures, in the book of Revelation. This inheritance is described as a new heaven and a new earth. New lands, new property, new kingdom. That's what's being offered to us. Now think about what that kingdom will be like, right? Every time you step out into creation, And you experience the majesty of this earth and you take in the glory of a sunset or a sunrise or you're in awe of the majesty of the stars or you just gaze at the wonder of the mountains. All of it, as glorious as it is, is still subjected to death and decay. So in Romans, Paul says, even creation waits in eager expectation to be set free from bondage and decay. Imagine, church, Imagine a new land. Imagine a new earth with all of its glory that was intended from its original design. Set free from the bondage of sin and death. Imagine that land. That's the inheritance that waits for you and for me. And how will we dwell within it? How will we exist? It is so much more than just some soul fleeing off to the clouds. We are actually given new physical bodies. 1 Corinthians 15. That's what we get to experience. So so the bodies that we have now, and as amazing as life is, and as incredible of a miracle as it is that we can explore and just marvel at, we still are set captive to the bondage of death and decay. Our bodies break down. We, We have sickness, we have pain, we have broken bones, we have injuries, we have all these different things that ail us because we are mortal. But when that new heaven and that new earth when that inheritance, that new kingdom is finally given to us, what will we have? The mortal will be clothed in immortality. That which is perishing will be clothed in the imperishable. We will be given physical new bodies to rule and reign with Christ on this earth. The other notion of an inheritance is that it's permanent. It's not temporary. It's not momentary. It won't break down, it won't cease, it won't quit. It endures forever. This is the kingdom that God has offered. This is what salvation means. I'm gonna deliver you out of this world of darkness and pain and death and set you into the kingdom of the son of whom I love, this kingdom of light, this kingdom of glory, this kingdom of eternity. That's the promise of eternity for you and for me. That's the deliverance that he offers. And that's the message of Advent. The king is here. And he comes to announce that the kingdom that he ushers in is near. And he offers this salvation, this hope, this deliverance to you and to me. And that's the message of Advent. That's why we come in and marvel at this manger scene and the glory that beholds him. When we, when we stop and listen to the words of the angels that say, don't be afraid, I bring you good news. Why? Because tonight a savior is born. This kingdom, this inheritance, this happiness is near. You have the chance to set free from sin and death and walk in Zion City, there beside this glorious king, this is what he offers you. Have you received it? Let us set aside all of these vain hopes of deliverance and give everything we can, everything we have, to experience the salvation that he has offered to each and every one of us. And when we sing, That's the hope that we sing of. That's the salvation that we fully long for. That's the beautiful deliverance that our souls so desperately need. May we never miss it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is so easy to lose sight of what truly makes us happy. And God, I, I acknowledge that there are things in my own life, as I know there are for all of us that have gathered here today, that become mistaken beliefs, God, that become a vain hope of salvation. God, I pray that we would set all those things aside. And we would focus in, once again, on the miracle of Advent. To see the beauty of the arrival of this king who ushers in this kingdom, God. And we would treasure the salvation that he offers, that we would give it our life, our soul, our all. God, that the fears that we may experience in this life, fears of loneliness, fears of isolation, fears of pain, fears of heartache, all those things would be set aside, God. And that what would ultimately direct our steps is the hope that we have in you, the hope that we have in Christ the King as we eagerly await the fullness of this kingdom, God. May we never lose sight of it. May it be the source of our praise. May it be the source of our comfort. As you look in on us and you see our hearts, God, may we give them to you. We thank you for your saving work. For it's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.